You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 173 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. We're back after that two-week break for the Thanksgiving holiday, and now that we're back, we're going to continue our march toward the Second Battle of Manassas, which took place over two days, August 29th and 30th in the summer of 1862. And there have actually been quite a few moving parts, so to speak, as we've been making our way towards Second Manassas, so a quick review might be in order. Um, First, though, just a reminder that with these Civil War battles that have two names, and in this particular case, the battle was known as Second Bull Run in the north and Second Manassas in the south, but we, here on the podcast, just as a rule of thumb, will go with the name that the National Park Service uses for the battlefield, although sometimes we may slip back and forth between the two names, uh, but officially for the show, we'll use the name, uh, the same name as the Park Service. Okay, so anyway, a quick review of where we've been so far in this story arc. Uh, Remember that this is all taking place in the aftermath of McClellan's failed Peninsula Campaign, And wrapped up in that, of course, is the Confederate victory in the Seven Days Battles, those series of bloody, hard-fought battles by which Robert E. Lee pushed Little Mac back from the very doorstep of Richmond. And even as the second Seven Days Battles were kicking off down around Richmond, the new Union commander in Northern Virginia, John Pope, was taking command of a new federal army, the Army of Virginia. And Pope's Army of Virginia was new, but actually it was cobbled together from three separate commands, which really had just one thing in common. All or parts of each force had previously been on the losing end of battles with Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley. At first, though, rather than joining his army in the field, Pope chose to remain in Washington. Pope was unusual in that he was a high-ranking army officer who was also a Republican and anti-slavery, and while in the Capitol, he made the most of every opportunity to cozy up to powerful radical Republican politicians. While doing so, he also made the most of every opportunity to criticize McClellan. After assuming command, Pope issued a proclamation to his troops, which started off, quote, Let us understand each other. I have come to you from the West, where we have always seen the backs of our enemies. Well, the proclamation was supposedly meant to instill some fighting spirit in his men, but it was also obviously a slap at Little Mac. 
Interestingly, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had much to do with the address's contents, and Abraham Lincoln sanctioned it. So one could say that Pope was merely the bearer of the administration's displeasure with Little Mac. Pope's appointment also signaled a change in the way the war in Northern Virginia would be conducted, carrying out a harsher mode of warfare, including taking crops and livestock from Southern civilians to provide for the Army's needs, was instituted with Lincoln's blessing. You see, Abraham Lincoln was disappointed and frustrated at the progress, or lack thereof, in the war against the rebels. To help turn things around, Lincoln brought in Henry Halleck to serve as the country's new general-in-chief. The president had high hopes for Halleck, who was the apparent organizer of major Union victories in the West. Lincoln wanted his new general-in-chief to make decisions, give orders, and generally take actions to relieve the president and Stanton of the everyday supervision of the military events. With regard to the shift toward hard war, which would shortly include a historic change in the federal government's position toward slavery, Lincoln would say, quote, This government cannot much longer play a game in which it stakes all and its enemies nothing. Those enemies must understand that they cannot experiment for ten years trying to destroy the government, and if they fail, still come back into the Union unhurt. End quote. For his part, George McClellan bitterly opposed these steps toward hard war. He deplored the controversial set of orders that Pope issued the third week of July, which spelled out the harsher attitude toward Southerners and the general prosecution of the war. Not surprisingly, Pope's infamous set of orders were also hateful to the Confederates. Robert E. Lee called Pope a miscreant and would say, in unusually harsh language for Lee, that the new Union commander in Northern Virginia needed to be, quote, suppressed. In the aftermath of the Seven Days Battles, Lee reorganized his army. He essentially formed two corps, commanded by James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson. But Pope's presence in Northern Virginia posed a problem for Lee. With McClellan still at Harrison's Landing, Robert E. Lee was faced with a tricky strategic situation, since he couldn't simply turn his back on Little Mac, but he also needed to keep an eye on what Pope was up to. If both enemy armies coordinated their activities, with Pope marching south and McClellan moving to once again threaten Richmond, then Lee would be in trouble, with his army and the Confederate capital caught in a tightening Union vice. Pope did begin to stir, making moves that threatened Confederate rail lines in central Virginia. And so, as y'all recall, Lee dispatched Stonewall Jackson to keep an eye on him. But when McClellan still showed no signs of stirring from Harrison's Landing, Lee then sent Stonewall reinforcements in the form of A.P. Hill's division. Those additional men allowed Stonewall to strike out at an isolated portion of Pope's command, and the result was the Battle of Cedar Mountain, which took place on August 9, 1862. Stonewall was victorious, but he was forced to retreat just a day or two later when more of Pope's forces arrived in the area, meaning Stonewall was now vastly outnumbered by the Federals in front of him. Cedar Mountain was a small but bloody battle that's not very well known. However, John Hennessy, in his book, Return to Bull Run, says it proved to be a decisive moment in the campaign that led to the Battle of Second Manassas. He writes that, quote, 
Cedar Mountain had taken some of the starch out of Pope. End quote. In fact, despite the fact Stonewall had to retreat after his victory, Hennessy maintains that after the bloody nose Stonewall gave them at Cedar Mountain, Pope and Halleck abandoned the initiative to the rebels, and during the rest of the campaign, they would never get it back. Pope's presence in Northern Virginia and McClellan's at Harrison's Landing, as we've mentioned, posed a significant strategic challenge to Robert E. Lee. But it's very important to realize that Little Mac's inactivity and then Halleck's order to withdraw the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula freed up Lee to first send Stonewall Jackson reinforcements and then second move north with the bulk of the Confederate Army to join Jackson and strike a blow at Pope before the Army of the Potomac arrived on the scene. McClellan bitterly protested the order to withdraw the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula to give up his own campaign in order to reinforce Pope in Northern Virginia only added insult to injury in Little Mac's eyes. Little Mac had rightly read Pope's pompous address to the troops as a slap at himself and had realized Pope's set of orders signaling a change to hard war was a repudiation of his own viewpoint, which he had clearly laid out before Lincoln in his Harrison's Landing Letter. And so, as James McPherson points out in his book, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, all of that, taken together, meant that whether consciously or subconsciously, McClellan wasn't likely to exert himself to reinforce Pope, and that attitude soon bore bitter fruit. When McClellan learned of Nathaniel Banks' defeat at Cedar Mountain, he reacted with satisfaction. He predicted that Pope, quote, will be badly thrashed within two days. Very badly whipped he will be, and ought to be. Such a villain as he ought to bring defeat upon any cause that employs him, end quote. Little Mac went on, saying that after Pope was defeated, then, quote, they will be very glad to turn over the redemption of their affairs to me. I won't undertake it unless I have full and entire control. End quote. Those words and that attitude help explain why McClellan seemed in no hurry to obey orders to reinforce his despised rival. Little Mac received those orders from Halleck on August 3rd, but the first units of the Army of the Potomac didn't leave the peninsula until August 14th. The last troops finally embarked at Fort Moreau on September 3rd. Halleck complained about Little Mac's foot-dragging, saying, quote, I cannot get General McClellan to do what I wish. Halleck's complaint about McClellan surely didn't surprise Abraham Lincoln. The president had been having the same problem for the past year. Little Mac himself left the peninsula on August 23rd, uncertain whether he or Pope would command the United Armies. He wrote to his wife, saying, quote, I don't see how I can remain in the service if placed under Pope. It would be too great a disgrace. But if Pope was beaten, as McClellan expected, then, quote, they may want me to save Washington again. Once they suffer a terrible defeat and Pope is disposed of, I know that with God's help, I can save them. (laughs) 
On August 12th, Robert E. Lee sent congratulations to Stonewall Jackson for his victory at Cedar Mountain. Lee expressed the sincere hope that it was, quote, but the precursor of others over our foe in that quarter, which will entirely break up and scatter his army, end quote. But with Jackson's retreat back to Gordonsville, his brief offensive had failed to change the overall strategic situation in the area. Pope's army was now concentrated around Culpeper, in the V of land between the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers, with the Rapidan to the south and the Rappahannock to the north. To the east, Burnside's troops were at Fredericksburg. But what continued to concern Lee the most was McClellan's presence at Harrison's Landing. But about the same time he sent those congratulations to Stonewall Jackson, Lee received reliable information that McClellan's army was starting to withdraw down the peninsula to Fort Monroe, where the first units were preparing to embark on transports. This was just the opening Lee had been looking for. Lee knew that McClellan's troops would pose a new threat wherever they ended up, but while they were withdrawing from the peninsula and moving to that destination, he would have a window of opportunity to deal with Pope. On August 13th, Lee put in motion ten brigades under Longstreet. They were to join Stonewall Jackson at Gordonsville. Another two brigades were sent to Hanover Junction to keep an eye on Burnside. Lee was going to leave the defense of Richmond in the hands of Gustavus Smith. You guys will probably recall how Smith was Joseph E. Johnston's second-in-command, and he briefly took over command of the Confederate Army after Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines, but he rather quickly suffered some sort of breakdown, and that's when Jefferson Davis put Lee in command. Anyway, Smith had returned to duty, and Lee would leave him with the 7,000 men of D.H. Hill's old division to defend Richmond. And D.H. Hill, by the way, had just been detached from Lee's army to go down and take command of the Department of North Carolina. Longstreet's arrival in Gordonsville created an awkward command situation, since technically he was senior to Stonewall Jackson, but this problem only existed for a short while, since Robert E. Lee arrived on August 15th. Lee believed that Pope had some 65,000 to 70,000 troops, but in reality at this point, Pope had about 55,000 men under his immediate command, which was about the same number that Lee had concentrated at Gordonsville. The Yankees were closely guarding all the crossings of the Rapidan on a 15-mile front, but they appeared vulnerable to a flanking movement on either end of their line. Longstreet favored a move around the Federal right, where the Confederate movement, if needed, could be screened by the mountains. Lee, on the other hand, favored a march around Pope's left for the purpose of getting between the enemy army and Washington and forcing Pope to fight for his supply line. Lee decided to move around Pope's left and drew up orders for the army to march to the east-northeast and cross the Rapidan at two fords. Stonewall Jackson and Lee were anxious to begin the advance the next day in order to strike Pope on the 17th, but Longstreet said that he needed a bit more time to organize and provision his men after their move to Gordonsville, so Lee put off the Army's departure until the night of the 16th, with plans to hit Pope on the 18th. Lee's plans probably would have had a reasonable chance of success if they hadn't been upset by a surprising set of circumstances. Part of Lee's strategy called for Jeb Stuart's cavalry to cut the rail line behind Pope, 
But due to some difficulties we won't get into here, the situation with the Confederate horsemen forced Lee first to reluctantly delay the army's march until the 20th. Then, when a patrol of Union cavalrymen crossed the Rapidan and surprised Jeb Stuart at his headquarters at dawn on the 18th, the Yankees just barely missed bagging Stuart, who had to ride frantically for safety. But the Federal horsemen did snag a copy of Robert E. Lee's orders for his army's advance against Pope. It didn't take long for the captured set of orders to find its way to John Pope, who already was fearful that Stonewall Jackson might be reinforced and attempt the very flanking movement that Lee was planning. And now these captured orders clearly informed Pope that not only had Jackson been reinforced, but Robert E. Lee, with almost the entire Confederate army, was just across the Rapidan, with plans to cross the river and turn Pope's left. Pope didn't waste any time. Shortly after noon on the 18th, he informed Halleck of his predicament and of the need to withdraw north at once, behind the Rappahannock. Halleck approved the move and also directed Pope to, quote, stand firm on that line until I can help you, end quote. After all, McClellan's troops were on the way, and soon the two Union armies would be united in northern Virginia against Lee. That night, Pope ordered his men to light their campfires and go through their usual routine in order to deceive the rebels as to his intentions. Then shortly before midnight, the Federals quietly left their camps and began marching to the northeast. This retrograde movement didn't please the Union troops. Some had just arrived that day and were disgusted to be heading back in the direction from which they had just come. And then night marches are difficult undertakings at best, and this one was marked by much confusion and delay, further frustrating the men. One soldier in Jesse Reno's Ninth Corps said, quote, We began to think the Pope was not a very smart general, or the enemy was particularly active and managed by better leaders. But despite the grumblings in the ranks, Pope managed to get his entire command safely behind the Rappahannock by noon on August 20th. Surprisingly, the Confederates didn't pursue the withdrawing Federals closely. In fact, Lee didn't learn of the Yankees' withdrawal until midday on the 19th, when some lookouts posted on Clark's Mountain saw the Federal wagon trains headed northeast, as well as all the dust raised by Pope's marching troops. Lee and Longstreet climbed Clark's Mountain in order to have a look at the situation for themselves. After viewing the scene, and realizing that his plan to turn Pope's left was now ruined, a disappointed Lee remarked to Longstreet, General, we little thought that the enemy would turn his back to us this early in the campaign. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Pote's withdrawal behind the Rappahannock was indeed a disappointing turn of events for the Confederates. Had Lee moved to attack Pope on August 18th, as he originally intended, he would have caught the Yankees strung out in long, vulnerable columns as they tried to get through the bottleneck at Culpeper. Even a rebel advance early on the 19th would have enabled Lee to catch Pope's army on the move. But as things turned out, Lee discovered Pope's movement too late on the 19th to make it worthwhile even to try and catch the Yankees. Lee let his men rest for the remainder of the day on August 19th, with orders to break camp only after the moon rose soon after midnight. Stonewall Jackson used the free time that afternoon to draw up his three divisions to witness the execution of three deserters. The next day, August 20th, saw quite a bit of skirmishing between the opposing cavalry forces as the Confederate horsemen pushed forward and ran into resistance from the Federal troopers screening the approaches to the fords across the Rappahannock. One of these clashes took place at Brandy Station, which will become famous in June of 1863 as the site of the largest cavalry battle to take place in the war's eastern theater. During the day on August 20th, Longstreet's wing of the army headed for Kelly's Ford while Jackson marched toward Rappahannock Station. Longstreet reached his goal, but Jackson's men, slowed by the dust and the heat of the day, encamped several miles short of their destination. It wasn't until the next day, the 21st, that Lee drew all of his troops up to the Rappahannock, only to discover that Pope's forces were strongly posted along their entire front. In this sector, the river was crossable at only a few points, Kelly's Ford, Rappahannock Station, Beverly Ford, and Freeman's Ford, and all of those points were heavily defended by the Yankees. The Confederate probe at Freeman's Ford developed into a lengthy artillery duel that Jackson terminated about three that afternoon when he decided to move farther upriver, that is north, and have a go at White Sulphur Springs Ford. The Union commander who was posted at Freeman's Ford, Franz Siegel, grew suspicious when the rebel guns across the way suddenly ceased fire and pulled back, and so he sent a force of three regiments under Brigadier General Henry Bolin across the river to investigate. Bolin had the misfortune to run into Isaac Trimble's division of Confederates, which Stonewall Jackson had left as a rear guard. Trimble's troops, which were positioned in the woods and so unseen by the Federals, pounced on Bolin's regiments and sent them flying. The Union retreat became a rout when John Bell Hood's division from Longstreet's wing joined the fray. 
Longstreet's men were just then coming up to relieve Jackson's units as Jackson's troops headed farther upriver. Bolin was killed, shot through the heart, and his panicked troops dove into the river to flounder back across as best they could. In the process, many were shot in the back or drowned in a sad scene that was reminiscent of the Union disaster at Ball's Bluff on the Potomac River some ten months earlier. When Siegel braced himself for a Confederate crossing at Freeman's Ford that never materialized, Stonewall Jackson was quietly marching his lead troops to the White Sulphur Springs Ford, five miles to the north. Stonewall was pleased to discover the ford was only lightly guarded by a few Union cavalrymen, and at about four o'clock that afternoon, he sent Dick Yule's division over the river to secure the crossing. The 13th Georgia of Lawton's brigade, supported by two batteries, waded across the ford under cover of a rainstorm and easily captured the few Federal vedettes or mounted sentries posted there. At the same time, Ewell sent Early's brigade across an old dam a mile south of the ford in order to outflank the Union position. Early had just finished his crossing when the rainstorm turned into a downpour of biblical proportions. The river almost immediately turned into a raging torrent, stranding all of Ewell's advanced troops on the Union side of the Rappahannock. Pope actually wasn't surprised by Stonewall Jackson's move to another crossing point upriver. Pope was well aware that he didn't have enough troops to defend the entire line at the Rappahannock in the area and still maintain contact with Fredericksburg and Manassas Junction, the points from which McClellan's reinforcements would be advancing toward the front. As a result, Pope had developed a plan to hold Siegel's troops in place at Freeman's Ford and allow Jackson to cross the upper Rappahannock if he wished to do so. Once Jackson crossed upriver, Pope planned to mass his troops along with whatever reinforcements had arrived from McClellan and then march quickly to Warrenton and smash Jackson's force. Pope thought better of this plan, however, when he learned that Jackson had actually secured a bridgehead at White Sulphur Springs. Pope now realized that a move north to strike at Stonewall would expose his, Pope's, rear to attack by Longstreet. And so on the evening of August 22nd, Pope telegraphed Halleck and said that he only had two good options, either to fall back with his entire command to the northeast, or to cross the Rappahannock with his entire force and hit Jackson's flank and rear. Pope indicated he personally favored the latter course of action, even though it would expose his own flank to Longstreet and leave the important railroad line to his rear toward Catlett Station unguarded. Even so, Halleck gave Pope the green light to attack Jackson. Halleck felt that the advanced elements of the Army of the Potomac, Heinzelman's Third Corps and Porter's Fifth Corps, could be brought up quickly enough to support Pope's attack. Pope's plans, however, were soon derailed by the same rainstorm that threw a wrench into Stonewall Jackson's movement. Before he could get his troops moving, Pope learned that the Rappahannock had risen so much that all its fords were impassable. As a result, it would be impossible for Pope to cross the river and strike Jackson's rear. On the other hand, Pope quickly realized that the river's raging waters also isolated whatever troops Stonewall had sent across before the storm. 
Early on the morning of August 23rd, therefore, Pope decided to march his entire command north to attack the isolated Confederate bridgehead at White Sulphur Springs, trusting that the swollen Rappahannock would, for the moment, prevent Longstreet from crossing to attack the Union rear. Stonewall was, in fact, fearing such a movement by Pope. Since the rain continued to fall and the river continued to rise, Jackson had little hope of crossing more troops to support the 13th Georgia and Early's Brigade. The only thing Stonewall could do was try to figure out a way to get his stranded troops back to safety. His best option was to rebuild the bridge which the Federals had destroyed a few days earlier, so he set his engineers to work on that project early on the 23rd. In the meanwhile, Stonewall brought up all the artillery he could to the river's west bank in order to support Early if the Yankees attacked. The situation made the Confederate commanders extremely tense, so much so that Jackson and A.P. Hill both braved the river in order to help Early draw up his defenses. But the continuing rainstorm delayed Pope's advance so much that his vanguard, Milroy's brigade, and a detachment of Buford's cavalry didn't arrive on the scene until late in the day. By the time the Federals deployed, it was too late to attack. Meanwhile, Jackson's engineers at last completed rebuilding the bridge. No doubt Jubal Early heaved a sigh of relief, anticipating his withdrawal back across the river to safety, so he was shocked when he received orders to hold his position. You see, instead of withdrawing Early's isolated and force, Stonewall had decided to reinforce it. Soon after dark, he sent the remainder of Lawton's brigade over the river to strengthen Early's line. Stonewall's plan was to assess the situation in the morning and then withdraw from the bridgehead only if the Federals were present in force. Early at once informed Dick Yule that there was already a large number of Union troops to his front and that his troops were hungry and completely exhausted. Yule crossed the river to evaluate the situation in person and agreed with Early's assessment. Yule withdrew Lawton and Early shortly before dawn on the 24th, and so rescued them from what Jubal Early was sure would have been, quote, inevitable destruction. While that drama with Jackson's command was going on upriver at White Sulphur Springs, on August 23rd, there was a flurry of activity downriver at Rappahannock Station. Pope had decided to keep the important railroad bridge there intact, rather than destroy it, in case he needed to cross back over to the western side of the river. In order to secure the span, though, Pope needed to maintain a strong bridgehead on the Confederate side of the river. To that end, the Federal position was manned by Hartsuff's Brigade of Ricketts Division from Irvin McDowell's Third Corps. Robert E. Lee, on the other hand, was anxious to secure the bridge in order to prevent Pope from using it to cross a major force over the river. And so Lee concentrated almost 50 artillery pieces on the night of the 22nd in the vicinity of the bridge. All these guns opened fire the next morning and at once provoked a fierce Union response from across the river in what became one of the greatest artillery duels up to that point in the war. Two hours into this battle between the opposing artillery batteries, Longstreet sent infantry forward to attack the Union bridgehead. They were surprised, pleasantly surprised, 
when they reached the enemy position and found that Hartsuff's men had just withdrawn. The delighted Confederate soldiers pushed forward to the bridge, only to be turned back by intense Federal cannon fire from just across the river. Longstreet didn't know that the Yankees would have withdrawn even if he hadn't mounted his attack. Irvin McDowell had just received orders from Pope to pull out and march up river to take part in the planned attack on Stonewall Jackson. McDowell was already in the process of withdrawing Hartsuff's troops from the bridgehead before Longstreet's assault. Once Hartsuff was safely back across the river, McDowell ordered Brigadier General Zealous B. Tower, the commander of his rear guard, to destroy the railroad bridge. Tower at first attempted to demolish the bridge with artillery fire, but when this failed, he at length managed to set the span ablaze. The burning structure collapsed into the river about noon on the 23rd, thus relieving both Pope and Lee of the concern that the other might cross the river there and make an attack. While those important events were occurring at Rappahannock Station and at White Sulphur Springs, something even more significant took place just a little farther to the north. On the night of August 21st, Jeb Stewart had made an interesting proposal to Lee, with an eye toward breaking the stalemate along the Rappahannock. Stewart offered to conduct a raid around Pope's right flank, aiming to get in the Union rear at Catlett Station and destroy the bridge that carried the Orange and Alexandria Railroad over Cedar Run. If Stewart were successful, it would cut Pope's supply line and so force the Yankees to withdraw from the Rappahannock. On the morning of August 22nd, Lee approved the expedition, and by 10 a.m., Stewart and 1,500 of his best troopers were heading out on the raid. Stewart and his men successfully crossed the Rappahannock without incident, rode on to Warrenton without opposition, and were nearing their objective at Catlett Station when the heavens opened up in a torrential rainstorm. Jeb Stewart was debating whether he should turn back before muddy roads and swollen streams made his withdrawal too difficult when he received a double dose of welcome news. His lead troopers had managed, under cover of the rainstorm, to capture the enemy pickets outside Catlett Station, and then Stewart also received intelligence indicating that the baggage wagons attached to Pope's headquarters were nearby. Stewart sent the 1st and 11th Virginia Cavalry to deal with the Yankees at Catlett Station, while the 9th Virginia set out to capture Pope's baggage. Another detachment was directed to burn the railroad bridge at Cedar Run. Stewart's raiders struck out of the darkness like lightning. The unsuspecting Union force at Catlett's was scattered in all directions, and Stewart's troopers captured prisoners by the score. The 9th Virginia did capture Pope's headquarters baggage, and the Union commander not only lost a fine dress uniform, but also his dispatch book. Stewart's raid failed to achieve its primary goal, the destruction of the railroad bridge, because of the structure's timbers were too wet from the rains to set on fire, but Stewart did succeed in a way that no one had anticipated. In Pope's capture dispatch book were the Union Army's marching orders for the day, as well as other significant papers, including a copy of a message that Pope had sent to Halleck on August 20th, giving the exact strength of the formations in his command and the location of his major units. 
Those captured documents also showed that McClellan's troops were going to march forward via Fredericksburg, and that Pope was not unaware that he could be outflanked on the upper Rappahannock. In his book, Return to Bull Run, John Hennessy maintains that none of this intelligence was necessarily new to Lee, but that it merely confirmed what the Confederate commander had already suspected. Nevertheless, this confirmation of what he had already guessed would be immensely helpful to Lee as he planned the next stage of his campaign. And Stewart's raid also succeeded at helping to unnerve Pope, particularly as it came at the same time as Jackson's crossing at White Sulphur Springs. And even before Stewart's foray behind the front lines, Pope had already expressed concern over the safety of his supply line, the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. If there was one thing that Stewart's capture of Pope's dispatch book underscored for Robert E. Lee, it was that the Confederates had only a few days left in which to strike Pope before McClellan's reinforcements began to arrive on the scene in large enough numbers to change the balance of forces in the area. And so if Lee was to defeat Pope, suppress Pope, before the Army of the Potomac arrived, then he would have to get Kraken and force Pope to fight a major battle before the two Union armies united. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Second Bull Run Campaign, July to August, 1862, by David G. Martin. This book, a part of the Great Campaigns series from DeCapo Press, is, like last episode's recommendation, a good introduction to this campaign for those who are unfamiliar with it. And one of the most interesting aspects of the books in this series are the sidebars you come across at different points in each volume that take a more detailed look at important people, places, events, or units. And sometimes these sidebars are more than that. They're actually a couple or several pages long. At any rate, that's The Second Bull Run Campaign, July to August 1862, by David G. Martin. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have two new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome into the ranks, Bruce and John. Thanks, guys. And then we also want to thank Predipta, Rich, and Brett for their donations. Thanks, guys. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we continue looking at the complex series of maneuvers that led to the Battle of Second Manassas. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.